fans and welcome to shut up and wrestle an old school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories i'm your host brian r solomon and this is episode 78 featuring kurt byer the son of the legendary destroyer dick byer we'll get to that in a second a few things i wanted to share today First off, I want to make a quick mention of somebody that I'm not sure everyone has heard of. It depends on your experiences on the internet as or as part of the internet wrestling community and maybe the earliest years of it back in the 1990s. But I wanted to make mention of the untimely passing of Rick Skaya, who was also known online as The Rick. Uh, when I first started getting into wrestling on the internet and really kind of educating myself to the inner workings of the business, as a lot of people did. There was that explosion of information and news and backstage drama back in the mid to late 90s, especially exploding around the time of the Montreal Screwjob. Uh, it was also coincided with the time that I first started getting online in general, not just about wrestling, but just in general, having a home computer with internet capabilities, getting on the internet, and at that time, Rick Skaya had a website called WrestleManiacs, and I know he had been doing stuff before that on RSPW and on his website, the News from Dayton, but WrestleManiacs is where I discovered him, which also later became Online Onslaught, featuring uh, other writers like Mikasa and Scott Keith, who thankfully is still writing about wrestling to this day, Christopher Robin Zimmerman, aka CRZ. But Rick Skaya was really at the top of that food chain. He was the one that put it together, along with people like Al Isaacs of Scoops. That was another early website. So for those of you that were around back in those glorious days of the awakening of the internet wrestling community, Rick Skaya was an important figure. And I remember his website was a daily visit for me, really, to find out what was happening in this arcane, fascinating business that I was learning so much about in my in my 20s and i was saddened to learn uh, you know rick hadn't really been active doing wrestling stuff for a while online onslaught had still existed as a message board at least up until about 2020 before it went down but i learned a few days ago that he had unfortunately lost a battle with cancer so uh, whether you know of his work or not he was definitely important to a lot of us definitely important to me so I wanted to make mention of the untimely passing at the age of 49 of Rick Skaya, a.k.a. The Rick. Also wanted to make mention of uh, an exciting development in the writing of Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. I had the pleasure a few days ago of being able to do an interview with none other than Brett the Hitman Hart. And I want to thank his brother Ross for helping to facilitate that conversation. 
For those of you that may not know, Brett had a unique connection to Gorilla back in the WWF days. Gorilla Monsoon gave him the nickname of the excellence of execution. And even more importantly than that, Gorilla Monsoon was a champion of Bret Hart backstage. He really saw potential in him. He had a connection to the Hart family. You know, Gorilla in his early wrestling years had worked in Calgary. He had been down in the dungeon with Stu. He had a connection to the Hart family, as as a lot of people have noted. He would mention them on commentary all the time, Stu and Helen and the Hart boys. And so I really had wanted to talk to Brett about this connection, about what Gorilla meant to him. And it was a great conversation. Brett was so very candid, as he always is. He shared his memories and his thoughts on Gorilla. And that will become an integral part of the book, especially talking about the later years of Gorilla's life and career. So wanted to pass that along. That was definitely a big get for Irresistible Force. Now, talking about my other book, my earlier book, Blood and Fire, I will be making that appearance I've been talking about at the New England Fan Fest. It's happening as uh, as this episode comes to you. It is just a few days away. It will be happening Saturday, July 29th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island, the New England Fan Fest. Come on down. You won't regret it. As I've said before, I am by far the least famous person that will be there. So you'll have a lot of fun coming down. There's a lot of great wrestling legends that you can meet and talk to. And if you want to, come by my table, say hello. I will be signing and selling copies of Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik. Please come by, and if you are a listener to Shut Up and Wrestle, please tell me so, because I'm, I always love to meet the listeners of this show. So I'm looking forward to that. Saturday, July 29th at the Crown Plaza Hotel in Warwick, Rhode Island, New England Fan Fest. Hope to see you there. Now that I've got all that stuff out of the way, I want to get to what is now the latest in a series of my interviews with the children of famous wrestlers, and that is this conversation with Kurt Beyer, who has such a great and unique story about growing up in Japan. Of course, his father, one of the most famous American wrestlers to ever set foot in Japan, maybe the most famous and uh, to this day. And so he has a very unique perspective on this legend and on what he meant to wrestling, not just in Japan, but also in the United States. So here I will take you now to my conversation with the son of the destroyer, Dick Beyer, Kurt Beyer. Okay, so it's my honor this week to have as the guest on Shut Up and Wrestle somebody who had a very unique upbringing, which we're going to talk about, very unique childhood and formative years, as the children of famous pro wrestlers tend to do. He is the son of, uh, in for my money, the greatest American masked pro wrestler of all time, one of the most famous, one of the most recognizable international superstar pro wrestlers to ever live. Uh, I'm talking about Dick Beyer, a.k.a. the intelligent, sensational destroyer, Syracuse's pride and joy. And I have here his son, Kurt Beyer. Kurt, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Did you I like how you, you like how I got intelligent, sensational? Oh, yeah. 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 As soon as you said it, I was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> I saw you <laughs> nod when I said yeah. that. 
Can I can I ask you? And I'm going to sound like a complete dummy here, and people no. will be screaming at the podcast who know this. But what's the origin of that? I've always heard that the the whole intelligent sensational thing. Where does that come from? The intelligent sensational destroyer uh, was uh, well, the well the destroyer. How he became the destroyer is one story. Right, that part I know. I'm familiar yeah. with. I I the never knew how he got those, destroyer those two very was, weird adjectives together like that. You know, well, he, he just uh, it, it just one day with him just you know being a heel, um, uh, interrupted the uh, ring announcer, and demanded just on the fly, and it stuck, and uh, and after that it was um, an intelligent sensational destroyer. <laughs> I just think it's one of the great wrestling nicknames of all time. And I remember recently somebody, I forget who it was, on an AEW broadcast, somebody described somebody that way. And it just kind of made me chuckle. Like people still <laughs> remember now that whole intelligent sensational thing. Um, the other thing I want to mention too is that um, because I've, past couple of years, I've been going to Cauliflower Alley Club reunions and I never had a chance to go before. And one of the great regrets that I have is that I missed your dad because he was, I mean, for so many people, that's the other thing I didn't mention in the intro. He was almost like the personification of the CAC. I mean, he was like the yeah. heart and soul of it. Yeah. He, you know, the cauliflower alley club started, uh, God years ago. And, and it was, it was started by, uh, Mike Mazurki, uh, who was a professional wrestler and became an actor. He was uh, he was the, probably the first uh, well-known pro wrestler to become a well-known actor. Now he wasn't a headliner. He wasn't a star, but he's a character actor that's been in. I mean, his movie credits are crazy. He was in Donovan's Reef. He was in. I mean, he he's been in everything, and he always played like a, a cop or a tough a, guy, a, a thug, a big. He, and he had cauliflower ear, and the ear. The logo is Mike Mazurki's ear. And it was set up to be an organization for pro wrestlers and boxers and actors who have portrayed um, a wrestler or a boxer. Um, so like Sylvester Stallone is a member. Uh, though there's a lot of people in Hollywood who are members um, over the years. I mean, you used to have this, the, the, the annual reunion was held in Hollywood, you know, every year there's a, a hotel there in Hollywood that they used to take over. Um, and uh, that was there for, man, years and years. And then they they finally moved it uh, to Las Vegas because there's not a lot to do in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> outside of that hotel. You know, the neighborhood is sort of dark at night. So uh, the guys were like, well, you might get more people to come if you held it in a place where people could combine a vacation with the reunion and you know, go to Las Vegas and all the boys love Las Vegas anyway. So it was a natural transition and, and it grew from there. Now it focuses mostly on wrestling, but, and very few actors actually come anymore, but in the, back in the day, and dad was a big supporter of it over the years. He was, he was always big uh, to support it and get other wrestlers to go and show up, you know, um, in the latter part, it was kind of sad you know, watching, you know, every, so I've been going to the cauliflower alley since I was in high school, you mm -hmm. know, every time I, you know, we'd be growing up in Japan. If I happen to be 
you know, traveling in that direction, I in it and it was in timed right. I would go with dad, and um, in the latter years, uh, you know, more and more of his 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 group, his homies, you know, that the guys that he wrestled with, they, you know, they passed on one after another, and so you know what used to be you know, 20, 30 guys that, you know, he knew in the business really well the, the, or, or more, you know, they they started to dwindle. And, you know, other younger wrestlers would fill in, take up those spots. But my dad's core group of friends, uh, he was the last man standing. Literally, he was the last guy, the last Cauliflower Alley Club that he attended. Not one of his uh, friends were there. Not one of his longtime friends. He was the last and yeah. you know it was kind of fitting because he's been such a supporter. It's fitting that he is the last one, but it was really hard to watch him, you know, realize that all of his friends are gone. Yeah, and I know other people have talked about that how the experience is different now because really, that it's almost like that original wave, the people that were there from the beginning, you know, those that generation, that's the generation that's really gone now. So I mean, if you go now. The old timers, you know, and I mean, they are old timers at this point, but the old timers you're going to meet are wrestlers from like 80s and 90s, yeah. maybe the 70s. If somebody yeah, has I really mean, Ricky Steamboat's an old timer, right? You Ricky is still the young guy, right, you know. Right, I still right. think of Ricky Steamboat as the as the kid, and and he's an old timer, you know. He's you know, uh, and and it, we know he comes every now and then, but yeah, it's 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 it is different. And and the vibe has changed a little. A lot more independent guys are coming, um, and that's a really good thing yeah. because it, it. I I I love the independent. I mean, I you know I, it's a love hate thing, right? Well, From, it's uh, good that the awareness is out there, right? And that you have these young people in the business who have a respect for the tradition because you always hear you hear negative things all the time about independent wrestlers they don't care about tradition they don't care about the legacy of pro wrestling you know and, and i, and I I've, I've seen examples of both i've seen both right. of those i've seen ones that do and ones that don't you know right you know i i you know i i get i'm a diehard kayfabe guy right <laughs> i grew up kayfabe right i uh your wrestler's kid uh in the 60s and 70s you know you it was kayfabe and and you know when i was in territories where people knew my dad was a wrestler we got i got in fights all the time at school wrestling's fake it's not fake fuck it. <laughs> you know and and we we defended the business and you know and then um and then you know he always defended it but it's just boom right and yeah, a reasonable person can look at it and say, oh, it's, you know, the the wording matters to me. You know, it might be semantics, but they're distinctly different. There's a distinct difference to me, even today, between fake and fixed. I don't mind if somebody says it's fixed, but there's nothing <laughs> fake about a body slam. There's nothing fake about a backdrop. There's nothing fake about the, the, the amount of uh, effort and and dedication it takes to do that well you know and so we are uh, i i uh you know when i see the independent guys there are some groups that that follow um you don't have to be kayfabe to the core but at least 
you know, the matches should make sense. You know, if if you're if you're body slamming a guy in the middle of the ring, and then you got to go out of the ring and drag in a table and put the table over him while he's still lying on the ground, and then go out of the ring and come back and hit him with the chair, and then go out of the ring and then climb up to the top rope and do a triple somersault up to the left. What? <laughs> that, in world does that really happen right and you can see a lot of times you can see the cooperation going on yeah, and things like it's that it's like you don't need to do all of that you know right. you should be able if you can't get a pop dad dad's signature move right a tackle do, do you know the wrestling terms the the move terms you know sure. what a tackle is yep right you just a shoulder shoulder boom one guy takes a bump right that's called a tackle right and 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 might say one tackle, get it again. Means right, get the headlock. Mm-hmm. Right, you got the headlock on the guy. He's going to send you off on the rope. Boom, you come off the rope. Boom, you hit. It. Boom, he goes down. Pick him up. Put him back in the headlock again. Right, simple. Right, one tackle, hit again. No drop kick. No uh, nothing up. Just off the top rope. Off the rope. Come back. Boom, boom. He takes a bump. Get him in the headlock again. If you can't get somebody to go, oh shit, from that. You shouldn't be in the ring. So I'll be blunt honest. You, you got no business there. It, it, yeah. If you have to, if you have to try to do a triple backflip <laughs> off the top rope to the concrete outside to get a little pop out of the audience, then you really that you you don't get it. But you see, this is what happens when the cat's out of the bag because they're doing all that stuff because they know everybody knows that they're not really fighting. So they have to go crazy and go out of their way. But if people really believe in what you're doing, as they did, they invest. You don't have to. You you can keep it simple because people are invested in what's happening and they really want to see who's going to win. That's a different kind of thing. You should always be able to leave them with doubt in their head. I know it's fake, but Tim, that looked real. Right. Like what is what isn't that question? I'm sure it's fixed. So you come off, boom, and the guy, boom, takes it and you get the head. And if you do it right. There's people that go, oh, and people in the front row go, dude, that sounded like it hurt, right? You know, it sounded like it hurt to the guy in the back. And everybody has, oh, it's it's fixed. But then, you know, if you're doing a good match, they should always wonder. And and so some some of the independent groups just, they don't even try. They, they don't even try to try to do it. And some of the guys are working through it and they're doing it right. Um, it take the good with the bad. And the fact that they're there is encouraging. The fact that they exist at all to me is a great thing. Yes. So I will always support uh, the, I support the independent guys that are local here. Um, I do whatever I can to help them out. Um, uh, they're, they're all, they're all good. You know, Steven Stroh runs uh, a really good uh, group here. Um, uh, they, they, uh, they just moved into the mall, <laughs> to the mall. You know, the the malls are dying, right? Right. And uh, um, Dipson, Dipson Movie Theaters. Eastern Hills Mall had a movie theater, a multiplex, a three-theater three movie. And uh, Nickel City Wrestling is the local. Um, Nickel City is Buffalo. Buffalo is referred to uh, as the Nickel City because um, – it's the second large. It was the second largest American city on the Great Lakes. Chicago was number one. We're number two. Sometimes it's called Queen City. 
Chicago's king and Buffalo's queen or Chicago's, uh, you know, the, the, the big city and nickel city is the whole nickel city is, uh, comes from the Buffalo nickel. Right. That's right. Right. Uh, comes from the, but the queen city comes from the second largest city. Nickel city comes from, uh, from the Buffalo that had nickel. Um, and nickel city wrestling is, uh, they moved into dips and movie theaters. They took over the whole movie theaters. So they set it up uh, where two of the theaters, the one theater is for their practice. They, they guys go there and they train. And then one theater, the main theater is set up for their shows. So you don't have a round experience to say the, the ring is set up on the stage and you'll watch it in theater. There used to be a lot of places like that when I was growing up, a lot of, a lot of venues were uh, like opera house type. Uh, right. Where the ring would be on the stage. Right. I've exactly. seen that. Yeah. And that's how they're going to run yeah. it at Dipson. They have the ring on the stage. And then the other uh, one, they're going to hold off for other venues for other people, uh, bands that might want to have a concert and have their friends come, you know, they can, they can play that. So they did a good, I think they, did, they made a good move to take over that space. Uh, and they're going to revitalize people who own those malls. They're going to have to find, Groups like that wrestling organization to come in and take over that space. Otherwise, what are you going to do? You know, they'll, they'll lease it and they'll, they'll, they'll turn it into, and you might be able to get a different type of buzz in the mall, you know, different from your normal clothing store after clothing store, different right. types of things that might move in. So nickel city wrestling is going to do a good, I think. Um, but anyway. Now I want to talk, I wanted to talk to a little, cause we hinted before just about, you're growing up and I want to be clear because uh, I always, I never know when people are listening, how much they know, how much they don't know. I think it's important, especially for an American audience or North American audience listening to really appreciate. I think it's impossible to overestimate how big of a deal your dad became in Japan. I mean, the a level of fame and kind of a high profile in the culture that almost no wrestlers ever attain, let's say, in the United States. I mean, at a level to the point of being almost like what El Santo became in Mexico, that kind of a thing. So, Dad, um, you know, he he started off as, um, you got to go back to the beginning. He started off as Buffalo's golden boy, Dick Meyer. He was a, a starting guard at Syracuse. And was always in the papers in Buffalo. Like how 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 many times does a guard get named, you know, in a, by sports writers? But the sports writers in Buffalo, they loved that dad was at Syracuse, and uh, they they had somebody from Buffalo who was on TV, you know, and you know he he would make the newspapers. And when he broke into wrestling, he broke into wrestling, and he got involved in wrestling in college, uh, on a on a fluke. He was the fraternity he was in was a lot of athletes from different sports. And the wrestlers were there. He was there on a football scholarship. And his junior year, uh, sophomore or junior year, uh, their he the heavyweight um, got injured. So the fraternity brothers told my dad, you're going to be our heavyweight. And dad was always training in the gym on the offseason anyway. And the coach, wrestling coach knew him because he was always training. And uh, they just taught, they literally <laughs> – they moved the furniture away, you know, in the fraternity house and they're wrestling on the floor. And, you know, he, he got into wrestling and dad's a natural athlete. He's, a, you know, he, 
he learned how to play golf. He was playing par golf. You know, he, you know, he, he's, I have to try really, really hard to be <laughs> a contributing member of any team, but then I just picked it up and he excelled at sports and um, he was a good hockey player. He was a good, and they picked it up and he actually won state. He was, he was a New York state champion two years wrestling in college. And he, he won New York state, went to nationals uh, and he came in second and uh, he got scouted by uh, Don Leo Jonathan uh, said, you know, you should go into wrestling. And uh, they took him in and he wore white trunks and his white boots. All the other wrestlers, standard wrestler, black boots, black trunks, all of them. And dad, he, he wanted white trunks and white, white boots. And he was a baby face, Buffalo's golden boy. And then, uh, you know, he worked his way through little tiny places, little tiny cities. And he, he finally got a shot in, uh, he was out in Hawaii wrestling and uh, Freddie Blassie saw him wrestling in Hawaii as Dick Byer and uh, said, you know, I'm going to get you to come to LA. And he, he told Jules Strongbow, who was running LA mm -hmm. about dad and Blassie was headlining uh, and Blassie knew him. He was the one that said, bring Dick Byer over here. He'll, he'll be a good baby face for us. And when he got there, Jules sort of surprised him and said, well, you're going to be a heel and you're going to be a masked wrestler. And he gave him this awful wool. Uh, it was a, it was a, a, it's something that covered his whole upper body, came over his head and buttoned down by the crotch. And it was this like wool and it had eye holes. And he said it itched <laughs> and, it, and it, it, it smelled horrible and he couldn't breathe. And, uh, you know, Jules Strongbow said, well, for two months, and, and then we're going to, take the mask off you and introduce the world to Dick Byer. And um, after that first match, he came back to the dressing room through that mask on the floor and told somebody to tell, tell Jules that uh, he's seen the last of the story. I'm never putting that on again. And Jules came in and said, well, it doesn't have to be that mask. It could be any mask. And, and this is a story you've heard. I know you've heard it, but, um, um, Ox Anderson was there and he threw a, a small head mask at my dad and he said, you can get a mask made out of this stuff. And it was stretchy, you know. My dad said, well, what is this? What's, what's, a, what's a woman's girdle? <laughs> you know, you're talking 63, you couldn't just walk into a fabric store like a textile store and get the kind of textiles that people can readily buy now anywhere. Yeah. You know, most people were limited to what they could buy in a fabric store. And certainly that stretchy type of elastic, elastic material on a, you know, it just wasn't available. Who, who would use it for what? And um, so dad went, my mother was a seamstress. He went to Woolworths, uh, to the women's lingerie department in Woolworths, <laughs> and was trying uh, girdles on his head in the middle of the lingerie department. <laughs> and within 10 minutes there was like 15 people stopped to just look at him like what is this guy doing and and he found out for trivia's sake that a small tall fit him just right <laughs> and that was that if anybody ever asked you it's a small tall and my mom created the destroyer mask and uh she cut out holes and she made the mask and those that that piping that goes around the eyes nose and mouth comes from you know, mom had to find a way to make sure that it didn't just rip, you know, they had to, you know, she, she's the one who created all of that. So she made everything from scratch. And there's a couple of, in 63, 
uh, there's anyway. So she created that mask, and it was perfect. was there any kind of was there any kind of like uh, trial and error, like ones that didn't work out? Oh yeah, there, there were like she tried. Mom played with different colors and different things, and she put a moon and a star, you know, sixties, <laughs> you know, Aquarius right. on the mask, and you know, and, and in the end, they just like the destroyer mask that we all know today is what they say. You know, this is what works. And the cool thing about his mask was it distorted the face enough that you couldn't recognize him without the mask. Right. But you could see all of his facial expressions. So he could he could show pain and he could show anger. You know, all the other guys have to pantomime because right. they, yeah. they it would show it. It's it was faces. It was very different from like your typical luchador type of mask. Right. Like and even most of the American guys would wear like Mr. Wrestling 2 wore that it was sort of like a luchador yeah. style. That mask where it hold it holds its shape. That the destroyer mask doesn't hold its shape if it's not on somebody's head. It's just sort of right. like almost like a sock, you know. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is literally. And he uh he you know after 2 months you know that mask was working and they were selling out and the gimmick was working in in the LA area i mean he they were selling out and he was wrestling all of the headliners so he went from obscurity as dick buyer to getting recognized a little bit in hawaii to now he's in the show la was like the biggest territory at the time the wrestlers in la at the time w- would go to the brown derby and eat where the movie stars ate they were they would be on regis regis's uh, tv shows interviews and it was all local television but it was la and and dad was the first masked wrestler to be taken seriously in the states there was mass marvel and mass this but he was a serious wrestler who wore a mask and um you know they were selling out and he was making more money than he ever had and then jules strongbow came in after about three months and said okay tonight's the night we're going to introduce the world to Dick Byer. And dad just looked at him and said, who the hell is Dick Byer? <laughs> he goes, no, no, no. We're going to take the mask off. And dad goes, this mask is never coming off. And, you know, Jules got really mad. He said, no, no, that wasn't the plan. And I don't care what your plan was. You put this thing on me and I'm never taking it off. And he never did. And he actually had to leave LA because he thought that Jules might set him up to get somebody to take out and left LA for a while, went up to Oregon for a while. But while he was in LA, he got, he got, he got, he met Ricky Dozan, who was the godfather of wrestling in Japan, mm-hmm. while he was wrestling as Dick Byer in Hawaii. There's a really great shot of Ricky looking at dad's cut as Dick Byer. When he came to LA, he, he, he did a lot with Mr. Moto. Um, Mr. Moto and uh, Mr. Tanaka and those guys, Mr. Moto and my dad became best friends. My dad, Charlie Moto, uh, the guy who wrestled as Mr. Moto, was um, an unbelievably talented um, wrestler and entertainer. I mean, his timing, he was, he could be, his interviews are great. They're hilarious to watch. Now, if if you ever get a chance, it's hard to find them because when you type in Mr. Moto, all this. Right. Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre stuff comes up. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But um, early on, uh, I, I did I did see a lot of online interviews with Mr. Moto and Jewel Strongbow, and his timing was just perfect. Anyway, he and those guys had a connection to the guys that were going to Japan. 
And Mr. Moto's American, but he's he's second generation. He's Nisa. He's born. Right. He's the first generation to be born in the States. So his and, family came from Japan to Hawaii, right? Is that the way it uh, came? Uh, Hawaii and California. He moved okay. to California. His family moved to California. His cousins are in Hawaii. Got I know okay. his cousins, the Aoyagis and stuff. They're all Hawaii. So he's got cousins and family between Hawaii and, and L.A. And that's where they're their connections were and they um they 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 said you know uh we're gonna you know introduce you get ricky dozen was like that dick Meyer guy that i met in hawaii who was already impressed with him as a wrestler but now that he's got the destroyer on and this whole persona thing going in la it it got a lot of attention a lot and and ricky dozen brought him over to japan and he went over to japan with mr moto he was Mr. Moto uh was such a good friend of my dad. He's my sister's godfather. Her name is Mona. If the days before ultrasounds, if she had come out a boy, her name would have been Moto. Wow. She came out a girl, and the contingency was what if it's a girl? And <laughs> Mona was the 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 closest thing they could find for a girl. Even though Moto's a last name, it would have just been Moto Buyer. And and uh, but it became Mona. And the uh the 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 persona as the destroyer was just it just resonated in Japan. I mean, he he got off the plane and there was a flurry of of uh, of photographers. I mean, they couldn't believe that this guy would just walk around with a mask on. Yeah, and my mom in those days made a street mask. It didn't have the nose opening. It was a lighter material because that girdle was you know was pretty thick and tight right right it, right a little bit uncomfortable to wear all day and then she had to make a street mask but and she that's where she started playing with all these funky stars and moons and with no nose and and eventually it was like no no he's a destroyer that mask was entirely different you, they got to be the same mask and so she made the same mask with a, a a stretchy material but not quite as strong and sturdy as the girdle was uh that he could wear on the street and 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 was it breathed more and he, eventually, um, after they got divorced in the seventies, uh, his uh, his masks were made by Arena and Adidas in Japan, and uh, they, they they combined uh, the stretching material. So his ma- his ring mask and his street mask were one and the same. Well, th- I always uh, this is something I always wonder about with people like your dad who who really were had to commit to that mask. Now, obviously most people, the 99 point you know, percent of fans, especially in later years, didn't know what his face looked like because he wore the mask all the time. Mm-hmm. Were there ever times where he could say, okay, I'm going somewhere where it's a non-wrestling related thing. No one's going to in a million years know who I am. So I don't have to wear my mask. I can just, I could just go without it. Like, did that happen? Yeah, all the time. Good. Um, I'm glad to hear that because what a well, terrifying idea to have to live your entire public life in a mask. Uh, I, I got a comment on that, uh, and then I'll go back to the Ricky Dozen thing. But, uh, you know, when when I was growing up, um, I wasn't allowed to tell people that my dad was a pro wrestler. Wherever we lived in the States, even when he was wrestling as Dr. X for a couple of years in Minneapolis, um, he had a van. You know, you're not supposed to lie when you're a kid, right? So dad said, you know, you see that van? 
that could be considered a truck. So if anybody asks you what I do for a living, you just say I drive a truck. So you're not lying because I do drive a truck. It's right there. And and that that was it. Uh, people didn't know. He would get out of the arena and he would take his mask off. He didn't start wearing his mask full time until we moved to Japan permanently uh, in in 72 because there weren't many Americans in Japan at the time. And, and it was, right. and we were in as a family in magazines and on TV all the time. And especially my little brother who was platinum hair, blue eyed little kid. There was no kids like that in Tokyo. I mean, there were so few Americans in Tokyo in those days or foreigners just to say, just say foreigners. And if you saw one across the street, you, you waved, it was considered rude not to, how could you not wave? Right. Uh, you know, and it wasn't uncommon for people to cross the street and say, hey, you know, I'm Kurt. Where, where are you from? And it wasn't uncommon for people to, to do that. Uh, now, well, forget it. There's millions of foreigners living in Japan. It looks like Times Square. But in those days, there weren't. And so when people see a foreign family, they go, oh, wow. And, oh, I recognize them from TV, especially my brother. Oh, that's Richie. That's the destroyer. That must be the destroyer. Ah. And that's where he started wearing the mask all the time. Um, and in back to 63, you know, the wrestlers were always at the hotel and wherever they went, they had photographers. They were always in the lobby. So he couldn't get away from them. So he just wore it on, he wore the mask on the street all the time. So that first match that he had, he had three matches in 63 with Ricky Dolzin in May. And the first one, uh, dad won. And it was huge. It was just and there, there is a picture uh, taken from the top of the arena um, of, of that match where um, Dad has the figure four on Ricky Dozan. He's covered in blood. Ricky Dozan's covered. The mat's covered in blood. Uh, it's a great from the top, black and white, straight from the top down. Referees bending over. That picture was taken by a photographer named uh, uh, Toyo Suzuki. And um, he was uh, the junior photographer for Tokyo Sports. Climbed up into the – he wasn't allowed to be around the ring. All the senior photographers were there. They were like, you're you're the junior – you know, he was like 17. You get, get out, go find someplace else. So he climbed up into the rafters, and he stayed up there until the match. And then that shot appeared below him. It won him the Pulitzer Prize, the equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize in Japan for the time. And there was such a furor over that first match that when they had their rematch a couple of weeks later, um, Tokyo, there was such a buildup to it that um, Tokyo station officials, not everybody in 63 had a TV in their homes in right. Japan. <laughs> and the uh, station officials put TVs on scaffolding throughout Tokyo Station. So businessmen on their way home from work could stop off in Tokyo Station and watch the wrestling match. 300,000 people gathered at Tokyo, just Tokyo Station to watch this match. It was watched by 70 million people, and it was the single highest rated commercial television event in history. Yes. And then uh, two weeks later... Um, uh, they had the final match of that three-match series, and the final match was uh, was a draw. So Dad won one, Ricky Dozan won the second one, uh, and then there was a draw. The only match that 
survived history was the second match because they weren't thinking let's save these for future use there you know the it was expensive those the original tapes like two inch tapes you know who's going to watch us again right they already know the outcome they're not thinking dvds or vhs and people right. are gonna watch there was us. no home video there, there was, was no home video they weren't thinking anything like that in those days but that second match was saved because of the ratings it was the single highest rated commercial event in history after the third match ricky dozen wanted to go drink uh and he, and he said you know destroyer you we're gonna go drink and uh, we can show the people that we can be rivals and we can be uh drink and dad said i can't i got a match in la i gotta i gotta leave we're, i got a match tomorrow in la i gotta catch the plane tonight on the next series next time i come we'll schedule time we'll, and we'll do that and they said okay let's do that next time so dad left got on the plane landed in la mom picked him up at the airport said ricky dozen got stabbed hmm. and he went out and what had happened was he went out to nightclub uh, the latin quarter uh and uh, he got into uh, uh, a bit of an altercation with a local mafioso, the Yakuza, the Japanese Yakuza. And uh, the guy came out and uh, stabbed him. And Ricky Dozen, uh, uh, he survived the night. He didn't go to the hospital right away. He went back to the office first and they did this. Finally, his, his people are like, look, you got to go to the hospital. And it took him to the hospital. And um, he was thirsty. And uh, he sent the doctors, he can't have anything to eat or drink, right? His stomach went straight right through the stomach. He can't have anything to eat or drink, but he was thirsty. And he sent one of the underlings to uh, get him, uh, you know, get him a soda. And uh, he drank that and ended up dying. And so the last person to have wrestled Ricky Dolzen was dad. Um, the highest rated commercial television event in history was him and dad. And it stayed at number one. Till 2001, like two, three and four on the list are like John F. Kennedy's funeral, Lady mm -hmm. Dice wedding, you know, major world events. Number one was a pro wrestling match between the Destroyer and Ricky Dozen. And it got uh, got uh, it dropped to number two because in 2001 was 9-11. 9-11 happened. And that was the most watched, you know, event on commercial television uh, in, in Japan. I think it's at number four now. Because you have the tsunami, you have 9-11, the tsunami, and uh, um, somewhere in the, uh, like, 2010-ish, uh, Japanese soccer team entered World Cup finals. That's a big uh, one. Yeah. And that, and that, that was huge. Um, every TV in Japan was on that. So Because certainly outside of major news events, right? Because wrestling and soccer i mean that's in a different category that's really like a television yeah. show right, right. Yeah. so rather than you know a, a major world event but I mean, yeah i mean think about the, that in order right i'm not crazy. sure what's number one i imagine that tsunami's number one soccer 9-11 the destroyer versus ricky dozan john f kennedy's funeral lady dies i mean it's crazy. and also some of the other i mean the destroyer uh, numbers were the biggest but some of those other matches from that era they were also doing these insane numbers like Luthez yeah. when he went over there Freddie well, Blassie yeah. when he went over yeah. there uh you know Meltzer has talked about it at length over the years the yeah. numbers he's got the numbers and it's the kind of thing that blows people away because you know a lot of people have no clue you're talking about I think it was something like a 65 rating 
some insane yeah. number yeah. to the point which is unthinkable in the even in the United States. Like that's like three times what a Super Bowl does or something like that. Yeah. And and to the point where when you're talking about share, which is the percentage of the TVs that are yeah. actually on, it was almost like a hundred percent. Like almost every yeah. single television that was on in Japan was on to that show, the the yeah. destroyer versus Ricky Dozen match. I mean there, unthinkable, in, unthinkable. Well, when we moved over there in 72, we just happened to Baba Baba when Ricky Dozen died, the there were three stars. There was Giant Baba, Toyonobori, and um and Inoki, right? And Toyonobori retired and and it, it came down to Baba and Inoki. And there was a lot of, you know, finally they just said, we're gonna split. And and they split. Japan Pro Wrestling became All Japan Pro Wrestling and New Japan Pro Wrestling. Baba had All Japan Pro Wrestling. Inoki had New Japan Pro Wrestling. And Baba asked, now, Dad, Ricky Dozen sent Baba and Inoki to L.A., uh, you know, for my dad to take them around and train them. My mom used to make sandwiches for them. She would get a whole loaf and, and pack a whole loaf worth of sandwiches for Baba a whole loaf of sandwiches <laughs> for Inoki, you know, and uh, and they would they would go on the road and dad, you know, and they, he's he's friends with both of them, and they both asked him, but it it he went with Baba just because Baba needed him more. Um, in, Inoki already had a good stable of wrestlers, and dad thought, well, I can help out Baba. Also, it yeah. seemed like Baba used more american stars than anoki did it was much more of a thing that all japan was known for and baba had set it up i mean they set it up uh, a, a really great system of you know a certain uh he had the year set up to these uh what they called series the summer action series the fall action series the blah 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 throughout and there were th three to five week tours separated by a couple of weeks off and and he it was on the road. They were on buses and trains and planes. And he brought the show on the road. And it was he brought in a different set of gaijin for every series to wrestle the Japanese. And they wrestled sort of tournament style, so that it, the they usually started and ended in Tokyo. They started Tokyo, and then they head off to other places. And then the 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 tag team champions, the local champion, whatever they worked their way down to, settled in in Tokyo. And Baba's system was just set up, and Inoki did really good. Now, don't you know New Japan Pro Wrestling was doing very, very well. Oh, absolutely. But, I think, but, but All Japan had edged them out, and they were making a little bit more money. Um, and when we first moved there, we were living just by chance um, right next to NTV. It's like living two blocks away from NBC in New York, right? Um, you know, you're right down the street from the NBC Studios. And there was a, a, a Friday night comedy show, very similar in format to Saturday Night Live. Uh, it was a live show, except it was a Friday night, 10 to 11. So primetime broadcast uh, live with quirky humor. Uh, they had uh, a bunch of skits um, and they had different guests for the skits uh, every week, different musical guests every week, very similar in format. The presentation of it was different. But it was a very similar format to Saturday Night Live. And they said, well, and they were at the bottom of the ratings. And, uh, you know, they were about ready to be canceled. And somebody said, well, let's just bring the Destroyer on. <laughs> you know, what have we got to lose? 
And it wasn't that the addition of and and the ratings peaked, and 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 they scrambled and said let's let's try to make him a regular. So they coordinated uh, with Giant Baba. NTV had the broadcast rights for All Japan Pro Wrestling, and this show was also an NTV show. So the NTV people, the Wasano Channel was the name of the show, uh, and uh, Baba all met together to <laughs> share dad. And it wasn't that dad um, dad the main star was a singer named Wada Akiko. And uh, he was the last spice that they needed. He was like Kramer on, on Seinfeld. Kramer's only in for 10 seconds. And it's all about Jerry and Elaine and George, right? It the right. Kramer's not Right. You don't you, you don't have too much Kramer, just a little right. bit here just, and there. It's hit right. and run. Right. He goes in, <laughs> he does the thing and he, and he runs. And that's how they use dad. You know, he would, you know, just do these quirky things. And it was at last it, it got people to watch the show and get it. And it was the last place to meet at its peak. That show had a 46 share. Oh, my God. And Crazy. was he was he fluent in Japanese by that? No, point? that's no. what made it so damn funny. <laughs> Right. He, he, I mean, it was live. So when he made mistakes, it was out there. Right? So they would have him speak in Japanese, though, but it yeah, would be all broken. So he, and Yeah. And they the cue cards are written phonetically, what they call Romaji. Right. They're written out like if we want to say karate. Right. K-A-R-A-T-E. They don't write it in Japanese. They write right. it in, in English. And that was letters. And they would they would write his lines in red and the, the preceding line in blue. Right. When you hear this. You say this, and that's where the cue card writers, if they if they were if they, if they weren't paying attention, they would go and highlight all of Dad's lines, and then they got these big cue cards that they write everything on. That Dad's watching while, and there's a rehearsal before they go live. But like, let's just say, uh, um, let's say the preceding line is, "I'm just making it up." What time is it? And dad's line is supposed to be, I don't care what time it is. It's give me the goddamn food, right? <laughs> That's the punchline. And well, it might be what time is it might be said three or four times by other <laughs> people before that. So the first time you get to, you know, you know, what time is it? All of a sudden dad comes in with this crazy punchline that doesn't make any sense to anybody at the time because they haven't built up to it. Right. <laughs> and, and then, you know, Wada would stop and go, wait a minute. <laughs> You're not yet, not yet. You go back. And and there was a time when, you know, they did that. Dad go back and dad would like, the cue card says. And Wada would look at the cue card. One, they did this. And she brought the cue card out, showed the audience, and said, the destroyer is absolutely right. When he hears this line, he's supposed to say this, which he did. And she brought the cue card guy out from underneath the camera and said, this guy <laughs> <laughs> the cute card. And those were the type of things that everybody loved watching that ended up being that the mistakes and the blunders are what made the show so awesome because all of the comedians that were on the show, they all went on to spectacular careers and Tamori and all these guys went on to lifelong careers and they were all super talented. They, they could go with it without skipping a beat and go off on a complete tangent and then come back to whatever they had scripted. It was a great show. So were you, in those years, were you sp kind of spending, were you living there full time is what I'm saying? In By Japan? that time. So after this, after the 63 
thing and dad, you know, Ricky Dozen, and, you know, dad was going over uh, to wrestle all the way up to 1970. Uh, it was still Japan pro wrestling. Uh, we were, we were in 1970, dad decided he could wrestle all over the world. So we took us out of school uh, for a full year. And we went uh, from, uh, we, we went from Minneapolis to Hawaii. We we're there for a couple of months. Then we went to Fiji and Samoa where he wrestled uh, high uh, Peter Mavia, who was uh, the rock's grandfather. Mm-hmm. Peter Mavia, uh, his daughter, Ava, uh, married Rocky Johnson, and they had uh, Dwayne Johnson. And uh, so he wrestled Peter Mavia in Samoa. Then we went to New Zealand. I was there for a couple of months. Um, and then uh, Australia, throughout Southeast Asia, Bali, Singapore, Hong Kong. And then we were in Japan for a few months. Uh, we, we as a family, stayed in the hotel. It was a nice hotel, you know, two-bedroom living room <laughs> kitchen and uh the uh and dad you know be on the road and certain segments we could go and travel with him and um and then from there we went to india throughout europe wrestled in germany for auto vance for a couple of months and eventually made it back uh to buffalo so in 1970 it was still all japan pro between 70 and 70 and 71 they split became all japan new japan Baba asked him to come to Japan for a year full time to help him build all Japan pro wrestling, which he did. That's why we moved there. So we leave Buffalo or Akron, New York, and and we're living in Japan. But that show, like literally like three weeks after being there, we were, you know, just down the street. He, he was on as a guest host. And, you know, I remember watching it that night, you know, dads would watch it and we didn't get it because we didn't speak right. Japanese at the time but everybody was laughing hysterically and then uh the next week he said well looks like I'm going to be a regular on that show so when I'm in Tokyo I'll be there and then when I'm when I'm traveling they they would say okay the destroyer is wrestling in Hokkaido tonight destroyer gambare you know good luck and then they would you know explain his absence if he was away and he was he he got you know, another whole fan base, people who weren't wrestling fans enjoyed watching him on, on in shows like, and then from Wasano Channel, he was always a guest on this show or that show. He was making so much money by the end of the year that he renewed his contract. And then he renewed it again. Hmm. And he renewed it again. He renewed it again. And if we had known at the beginning that we were going to have this type of relationship with Japan, you know, it would have been wise to like buy land, buy a house, do something like that back then. Um, but, you know, it was always a year to year contract. And then uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to, uh, we all, my brother, my sister, and I went to international schools there. Um, Catholic, you know, schools, blue blazer, patch, white shirt, gray pants, red tie for junior high and uh, elementary blue tie for high school yeah you know you're a complete dweeb when you get so your were, were you like the only white kid in the class or how no no that? uh so you think of um uh all the embassy kids there were a lot of embassy oh i kids. see i see what you mean um okay. embassy kids um uh executives for corporations that were working in japan their kids uh so foreign executives their kids uh a lot of um 
embassy kids, military kids have their own because the military bases have their own schools. And so there's about a dozen schools or you know, eight schools uh, that were international and base schools. So we had a sports league and we had, we had dances. My, I was in art. My school is all boys. My sister's school is all girls. There were two all girls schools and the Catholic school, you know, uniform plaid skirts and white blouse. So, you know, we, that's the, and, but young, young foreigners, it was just us. So if you young foreigners were just those kids that were part of the international school system. And if they weren't part of that international school system, there, there weren't any other young people in Tokyo. Becoming, you know, a part of that, of that world and that culture and as a full-time thing, it's so interesting to me because, I mean, of course it was a pattern that some other American wrestlers would follow later. Like Stan Hansen comes to mind yeah. as some, as somebody who basically just, you know, had had success in the U S went over there and said, shit, I'm just going to stay here. I mean, I'm not going to make this kind of that money had a back lot to home do with that. I think because Stan watched dad, Stan learned from dad. There's a great, there's on YouTube. There's a Stan Hansen versus the destroyer before Stan Hansen became the, the cowboy. He had curly hair. Yes. He's got curly long hair in this video, blonde, curly long blonde hair uh, before he became the Stan Hansen that we know now. Um, but I think he looked at dad and, and he got over in Japan. He did really well and he kept his nose clean. A lot of the Gaijin wrestlers that went to the foreign wrestlers that went to Japan you know, they all think that they're superstars and they're living like rock stars in the hotel and they're trashing the hotels. We got kicked out of so many hotels because of idiots. But Stan always kept his nose clean. Dad, too, right? They never did anything stupid. Um, and, uh, you know, they liked that he, he had a good work ethic. Um, he was loyal to Baba. And um, he had a good long career in Japan because of it. So, yeah, I, I think Stan looked at, at Dad and said, there is a path to a good wrestling career here in Japan. And he, and he followed it. I, I would, I, I, I think it's not even, not even close. The two most famous Gaijin wrestlers in Japan are dad and Stan Hansen. Cause oh, of, yeah. just purely because of the longevity. Yeah. Right? And I, I mean, mean, there were, there were some people who I guess could have done it if they wanted. Like I think oh yeah, Fez probably could have done it if he wanted well, Fez to. Could have been, yeah. Blassie Fez, could have done it if he had wanted Fez, to. Fez Blassie. Luthez is still, uh, considered the godfather of American wrestling by the Japanese. They can all things start with Luthes. There's Carl Gotch to too, of course. There's Carl Gotch. Um, man, you should see the the that first sixty three tour. There's Carl Gotch, Ilio DiPaolo. Um, oh man, that I mean, it was the nineteen seventy tour. Same thing. Carl Gotch was there again. You know, he had a good career. I saw Carl. As I was growing up, he would come in, you know, every four or five months, six months to to wrestle. He had a long career. There's a lot of guys that could have. Yeah. So did your dad, you know, it's because it's so interesting to come from one environment and upbringing. It's such a unique life path. Did your dad ever kind of talk about what a, an unpredictable path his life took him on i mean who would have ever imagined the, you know growing up in upstate new york and now yeah. i'm this i'm this legend in japan i mean it's the most who could have ever seen such a thing coming you know he was awarded he was awarded um the uh order of the rising sun um 
which is the Japanese equivalent of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, it, it comes from the emperor. Um, and there's different classes. Um, his is specifically uh, Order of the Rising Sun, um, gold and silver rays. Um, the, there's the rays that, that come off the sun. There's gold and silver rays. There's, um, and depending on whether you're a, uh, a politician, a statesman, royalty, there's these different classes. And his is gold and silver. And when he received that, you know, he, you know, just him wrestling all over the world that year in 1970, when we lived in Germany, in Germany, just as an example, Germany, wrestling comes to town the way a Broadway show comes to town. It comes to town and they wrestle every night in this arena for a month. And the wrestlers live in uh, RVs and trailers, the way movie stars live in trailers when they're on location, right? And and so the wrestlers are all they have like they they have these uh, the campgrounds where all the wrestlers are staying. Kind of like the circus a little bit. It's like a circus, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and every night they drive to the arena and they wrestle. And we were living in a, a Volkswagen van, the camper van with the pop up top and a tent that attached to the side for three months. Now I loved it. I was ten. This is heaven. I want to live like this forever, right? My mom was like, this crazy. So my dad, for somebody who hated hippies so much, he lived a pretty bohemian lifestyle. You know, I was like, you know, you don't want to admit it, but you you have the mindset to the world that most hippies do. You know, you you know, you're just an athlete, but you know, he was he was not, he was always curious about other cultures, other people, other countries. He always wanted to go there and see it. And, you know, his generation has a certain, but he was always open-minded. He was never afraid to travel. You know, we grew up knowing that the world is pretty small. And, you know, not everybody's like Americans, but humans have a, a, a quality, qualities that are common amongst us all. Parents care for their children. Children play they don't care what you are. Children are going to play and, you know, different cultures are different, but um, there's a, there's a commonality to all humans. And, um, you know, always when we were growing up, I, I lived in Japan for altogether 20 years. It always, I've had in 20 years, two of my cousins came to visit while I was growing up. I have a lot of cousins. No, nobody came, you know, I, like it, it's just a plane ticket, but, you know, people have a mindset that it's all the way on the other side of the world, like they were flying to the moon or something. It's like you get on a plane in 14 hours, you're going to be standing in another country. You're going to stay at our house. You're going to have a, a the best tour guide you ever had, right? Come and, and see a different culture, see things. And that's part of, you know, his, his philosophy when he was here coaching swimming uh, when he retired. He would raise money and bring his, he brought uh, two different swim teams to Japan so they could see that the world is smaller than they think, that they should see what it's like outside of Akron, you know, expand your horizons, look somewhere else. Don't be afraid to move to another state or another city to get a job. You know, don't stay here and limit your career opportunities because you're too afraid to take a chance and move someplace new. Move there, you know, try it do it. You'll surprise yourself. And that's where 
I think, you know, when he finally, you know, we all were in tears when they read the certificate, the, the, the ambassador, the Japanese ambassador came to Buffalo to present the order rising sun. And as he's reading the certificate, I'm translating to dad, I'm sitting right behind him. And it's, you know, this is, uh, you know, um, from the emperor of Japan has decreed that Richard Byer, blah, 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 blah. And to come from Buffalo and be honored by the emperor of Japan for a career, not just for wrestling, it was for all of the bicultural things that he did. He brought a group of kids from, from upstate New York to, to wrestle in the All Japan Kids Wrestling Tournament, ages 7 to 11. He brought a destroyer team every year for 25 years. They, every summer, they would go to Japan. Sometimes you have two wrestlers. Sometimes you have 15 wrestlers. You know, with their parents, they would they they raise money. They sell T-shirts, raise money, and they get enough, and they arrange homestays, and they know what. You know, he did this when the tsunami hit. They asked Dad to come to the hardest-hit areas to um, help boost morale. And uh, the, I went with him on that. And, you know, imagine 300 miles of coastland gone. That's like Buffalo to Toledo, gone. Um, and the hardest hit area, the uh, the water had received. There were ships sitting a mile inland, ships sitting a mile inland. Not a lot of houses in Japan have basements. Most of the houses are built on these concrete footprints. So they build this concrete footprint and they... The house starts probably 10 inches above the uh, concrete comes up 10 inches because water table is pretty high. So then they don't want, they want to protect the wood. Entire neighborhoods gone. Nothing but those concrete footprints, buildings. Some buildings were standing gone and they were still sifting through rubble looking for bodies when we showed up. And the survivors were living in uh, camps um, like, um, um, Construction site, you know, those those trailers, that construction. So they they the the government would set up a whole bunch of them so people could have a place to live while their houses are, you know, they don't even know if they're gonna build this village again. You know, are the businesses gonna come back? Are you gonna build a house there? Are you can still gonna be they're still working all that out. And in the meantime, kids are still going to school. People are living in these in these makeshift camps. And uh, dad went for uh, a couple of weeks to go from, you know, village to village to say hi. And, and uh, it was a huge, um, it was, it was really, people would laugh and smile and, and, and be really happy and forget about their situation, at least for a couple hours. And dad would hang out with everybody for a while and, you know, and he was he was given an award, uh, the um, the ambassador's award, for that specific effort, and that's what um, triggered uh, his nomination to the uh, Order of the Rising Sun. And so, technically, it was for a lifetime of promoting bicultural understanding between Japan and the U.S. And he grew up; he was a kid when Pearl Harbor happened. You know, he hated Japan, like every American hated Japan, right, right. hated the Japanese. 
and ended up loving Japan, you know, deeply. It's an incredible story, really, and an incredible achievement, contribution to another culture. I think it would make a great movie, maybe one day. It would uh, make a great movie. You know, I when I when I wrestled, uh, you know, I want when I hit 30, I wanted to follow dad's footprints, you know, and I decided I wanted to become a wrestler. So I, you know, I was supposed to go to Don Owen and wrestle on Oregon. And uh, Vince put him out of business about a month before I was supposed to go. Oh, so wow. I get a call from Don and said, uh, I lost my TV contract. You know, Vince was systematically putting everybody out of business, and I won't go down that path. Just right. let, you know, the facts lie where it is. We, we all know the story. Yeah. And uh, uh, I put in a call to Baba, and Baba said, all right, come to Japan. And I had started at the bottom. I went to the Japanese dojo, worked my way up. Um, in many ways, it it would have been better if I wasn't the destroyer's son um, because of all the political jostling and stuff inside that organization um but i wrestled for five years um you know and a couple of years when i was with all japan before baba died uh i got to see at least firsthand what my dad had to do to raise us and um i got to wrestle with him as his tag team partner um as uh on his last match sayonara match at a sold-out Budokan arena. So here's the Budokan. It's like Madison Square Gardens. There's Tokyo Dome is bigger. Shea Stadium's bigger than Madison Square, Madison Square Gardens. But there isn't any, there's something magical about the gardens. Same thing with uh, the Budokan. There's something. That's where I went to watch all my heroes growing up. Tokyo Dome didn't exist in the 70s. Santana, Eric Clapton, Kiss, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I watched them all at the Budokan. Uh, just to be able to see what he had to, you know, you know, at the Budokan uh, on the Sayonara match, it was worth it. I should have retired. I remember standing, tagging dad in, right? There's a famous story I won't go into and that. We can talk about another time where I, at four, I tried to save him in L.A., tried to jump in the ring to save him. And <laughs> that's why I, I ended up breaking Mr. Moto's toe with the, with the, uh, the hammer from the bell, but that's a, another story. But the, uh, you know, I was transported in my head back to that four-year-old kid tagging dad, you know, at a sold-out Budokan was my dream. And I remember thinking at that time, it's never going to get any better than this moment right here for me. Everything after this is going to be downhill. So I should retire too, because I, I it was it was like my Everest. I had a my midlife crisis early. I had to do something really like achieve one of my dreams. I wanted to be a pilot, a rock star, a professional wrestler. One of those. Rock stars out. Pilot was out. Was too old, and so I went into wrestling. And I should have, I should have retired then. But it was like it's dad's thing, and you know, as fate would have it, a year later, I got hurt and my career was over. But it, I, I, I don't regret it at all because it gave me a front row seat to dad's life. He had to work. He had to wrestle when he was sick. He had to wrestle when he was hurt he had to wrestle when the last thing he wanted to do was get in that ring and he always he always put in 100 percent. and uh i came out of that with a whole new appreciation for my dad you know he worked really hard to raise three kids and put them through school and uh he literally literally showed us the world 
Well, Kurt, I don't know what to say. I can't, other than that, our time has flown by so quickly. I can't believe it, but it, it it's quite a story. And, you know, just to have you here to talk about your dad and talk about your own experience kind of growing up around the world with your dad. I'm I'm just honored to have had you here and, and to be able to talk about I, it. You know, I can talk for hours and hours and hours, you know, uh, especially about wrestling. It's my favorite subject. I, I Stories about everybody um, that I... I I I'll come on anytime you want. That's great because I'm I'm trying to eventually get to the point where I I've been. Don't slowly... try not to drop on tangents. No 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 I love tangents. The show's all about tangents. No, but I've been trying to now start to bring people back and having return episodes. You know I've been doing this now. I've done about seventy five episodes, a little more than that. And so every now and then I have somebody back and I want to keep doing more of that now since I've had so many interesting people on. So we will have to do a follow-up episode. I wish, I wish so much that this medium uh, was available way back when. Oh, yes. I would have done what you're doing with all of dad's friends. I would have all those guys, Mr. Moto, Freddie Blassie, the Vashon brothers, you know, uh, 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 Red Bastine. There's so many characters that I wish to God I had on film. Yeah, it's a it's amazing to be able to document it today in a way that we never had, you know, yeah. way back when. But uh, we have it for the people that are around now, which is better than you know, it's it's better than nothing. But like you said, I mean, boy, there are some people that I wish we had shoot interviews from for sure. Oh, no yeah. question about it. <laughs> well, you're doing a really good job and I Thank hope you. you have a lot of success with your show, man. Thank you. Thanks for coming on. Cheers, brother. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Kurt Beyer, son of the destroyer, Dick Beyer. Thanks so much, Kurt, for making time for that interview. I do enjoy those types of interviews. And along that vein, we're going to continue the trend next week because for episode 79 of Shut Up and Wrestle, this is going to be hilarious, insightful, and something you don't want to miss because I have the very first ever podcast appearance of Jessica Solt. Who is Jessica Solt? Well, she just so happens to be the daughter of Bobby the Brain Heenan. And that's going to be the subject of our conversation next week. For episode 79 of Shut Up and Wrestle, don't miss it. And, you know, honestly, if you're asking me, I would tell you, don't miss any of our future episodes. You know, a lot of times people will say to me, and this, I don't know if this is a backhanded compliment, but I do take it as a a just a general compliment. People will say, you know what? When I heard about who the guest was going to be, I thought this isn't going to interest me at all. But then I listened and I loved it. <laughs> well, I guess if you're doing that, thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening to the show. Thanks for giving it a chance because a lot of these guests have stories that you really wouldn't believe until you actually hear them. So I have more coming in future episodes of Shut Up and Wrestle. I'm working on booking people like Mike Edison, who was an editor and writer for Wrestling's Main Event magazine, and he's also the author of such books as I Have Fun Everywhere I Go. And he will be coming to the show to talk about that and a lot of other stuff. I've also got the daughter of... Ox Baker, Ms. Megan Baker Kelly on her way to shut up and wrestle. And I'm working on an interview with Carl Stern, who a lot of you folks may know, maybe as Dragon King Carl. He is a longtime wrestling historian whose work I have admired from afar for a very long time. And Carl has told me he's going to be doing the show very soon. 
Can't wait to bring that to you. You can find our show at our website, suawpod.com. You can also find Shut Up and Wrestle all the usual places where you find podcasts, meaning Spotify, Podcast Addict, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, lots of other places. Check it out. Subscribe. You know the drill. Also, while you're at it, join the Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. Over a thousand fans and listeners going strong. Add to that group today. Lots of additional content related to the show posted on a daily basis by myself and by the listeners. The Wrestling News, your daily morning update on all the news in the world of wrestling available to you from the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. I'm a part of the team. Subscribe to it. We, we have it at thewrestlingnews.com. It's also on the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. You don't want to miss a single episode. If you'd like to pick up a copy of my book, Blood and Fire, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on at Barnes & Noble, whether online or in the physical stores. You can get it wherever books are sold, online or otherwise. The magazines I write for, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, pwi-online.com. You can get it there in digital or print form. I'm also a contributor and co-host of the PWI podcast with Al Castle. And of course, Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com in digital or print form. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. And you can also find me on Facebook. My author page on Facebook is Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you'll find the link to my author website. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and telling you in the words of the late, great Tony Bennett, I know I'd go from rags to riches if you would only say you care. And though my pockets may be empty, I'd be a millionaire. So long, wrestling fans.